Okay, here we go. Nice to be in conversation with you. Before we begin the third session, or as we begin the third session, I was given this question, and I need to handle it before we move on. Since the roadmap, as presented, pertains to traditional literal marriage, are single individuals missing out or not able to obtain the fullness of revelation that restores God's original plan because of their single status? The answer is no, not at all. The discipleship roadmap applies to every person and every situation. I happen to be using a document that frames things in terms of marriage to illuminate a basic pastoral method. But we teach a whole section of a course to seminarians on how they are to live this out, for example, in their celibate state. And it applies to every single man or woman in their particular state of life, station of life, and stage of life. Okay? So it, does, it applies to everyone. All the quotations happen to be about marriage, but you can simply take that out and apply it to, how does this apply to me? How is God calling me to perfection and holiness? What is his goal for me right now? Okay? So it does apply to everyone. Um, but as long as we're using this document, it's often stated in terms of um, marriage. Now, what is true is that for every individual, because we're made in the image and likeness of the Trinity, we're called into relationship. Marriage is optional. Relationships are not optional. Relationships are an originally constituting part of what it means to be human. So if you can think you can be human apart from relationships, you are missing out on something. But if you think you have to be married to be called into the fullness of God's plan, that's not true. You're called into the fullness of God's plan right where you are. Okay. So the next question comes up is, what does accompaniment look like following a discipleship roadmap method? This is one of my favorite slides ever. It's complicated, isn't it? That's what I like about it. Let me explain what's going on with this slide, and then we'll unpack it for you. The current state here, this is where the person is right now. Over here, this is the goal. This is what Jesus wants for them, more than where they are right now. All of the... Uh-oh, I lost my point. There it is. All of the green lines and arrows are the forces working for them in their lives. And those are natural endowments, family history, graces, and so on and so forth. All of the red lines and arrows are the forces that are working against them in their movement toward holiness and fullness. This is a situation that describes every person, every family, every institution. Under these circumstances, what does authentic pastoral care mean? Let me give you an overview and then we'll walk through it point by point. First, simply restating the goal. This is the goal. This is where you need to be. You're not here. You need to get here. This is where you need to be. That's not authentic pastoral care. That's not accompaniment all by itself. In addition to stating the goal, you also need to meet people where they are. You have to understand the forces at work for them and against them where they are. How are grace and sin interacting in their situation? How are their own strengths and weaknesses working on them there? So yes, you state the goal, but you also meet them where they are. But simply meeting them where they are and affirming where they are, that's not authentic pastoral care either. That's not accompaniment. There are people who just want to meet them where they are and say, hey, it's all good. You know what? It's not all good in anyone's life. There is sin at work in everyone's life. 
So in addition to meeting them where they are, you have to give them something to aim for with the hope and the conviction that the more is possible for them. You know, I don't think Jesus wants you to live this way forever. I think he's got more in mind for you. I don't claim it's going to be easy, but I think there's more. And simply meeting them where they are and giving them something to aim for, that's not accompaniment either. That's not authentic pastoral care. You also have to walk with them step by step from where they are to where Jesus wants them to be. And you know what? That's a lot of work. Well, welcome to the world in 2019. Are we going to do it or not? That's the question for us. Are we going to go into those messy situations with all that Jesus wants and all of his methods, or are we just going to leave them alone? I think the answer is clear. That's what we're here for. My summary of it all, let's make it simple for a minute. Meet them where they are. Don't leave them where they are. Ah, Simple. If only it were so simple. Back to the handout with the quotations and the document. Let's look at how each of those points shows up in the text. You have to state the goal. That's clear in the text. That's been carried out in practice. But here's the first point. Simply restating the goal. This is where you need to be. That's not enough. You also have to meet them where they are. So, for example, under the path section of your handout, look at paragraph 37. The path section, page two. We have long thought that simply by stressing doctrinal, bioethical, and moral issues without encouraging openness to grace, we were providing sufficient support to families, strengthening the marriage bond, and giving meaning to marital life. But we weren't. (laughs) It's not enough to say, listen, you can't get divorced. You can't get divorced. You can't get divorced. Listen, I understand that, but how do I deal with the problems that are coming up here? What do you do? Listen, you cannot use contraceptives. Don't use contraceptives. Stop using contraceptives. I get that. But we have five children. My husband is on deployment. I suffer from depression, and it gets worse during pregnancy. And the last time, okay, what kind of help can you offer me under these circumstances other than simply saying, don't do that? Look, the teaching is clear. And contraceptives are not good. But how do you deal with the messiness of that situation? How do you help them in those concrete circumstances to live physically, psychologically, socially, spiritually? Okay? It's complicated. You can't simply restate the goal over and over again. Paragraph 230. This is under the pastoral care section, so it's on the back page. Nowadays, pastoral care for families has to be fundamentally missionary, going out to where people are. We can no longer be like a factory, churning out courses that, for the most part, are poorly attended. Now, the courses we will be sponsoring during Lent will be well attended. (laughs) But isn't this the parish experience? We'll have another course, we'll have another course, and the same 11 people will come again and again and again. It's not fundamentally missionary anymore. They're not coming. It's not enough. You have to go out and find them where they are. And that requires a different kind of apostolate and different kind of service in the parish. Paragraph, uh, under the situation, paragraph 49. Is that under situation? Yes. Here I would also like to mention the situation of families living in dire poverty and great limitations. The problems faced by poor households are often all the more trying. For example, if a single mother has to raise a child by herself and needs to leave the child alone at home while she goes to work, the child can grow up exposed to all kinds of risks and obstacles to personal growth. Here it is. Look at that chart. What's the situation? 
Single mom, impoverished family, has to go to work, child's at home alone. What's the goal? Ideally, it wouldn't be that way. But it is. What are the forces working for them and against them under those circumstances? In such difficult situations of need, the church must be particularly concerned to offer understanding, comfort, and acceptance, rather than imposing straight away a set of rules that only lead people to feel judged and abandoned by the very mother called to show them God's mercy. Listen, you should really be at home with your child. I know, but it's just not happening, right? And if that's the first and the only thing that mother hears, what's the likelihood that she'll come to Mass? What kind of help can you provide? What kind of understanding? No, it's not an ideal situation. But what kind of mother are you leaving your child exposed to all those difficulties? Listen, I get, know that it's not perfect, but help me. How do you help me under these circumstances? And then paragraph 305, also under situation. For this reason, a pastor cannot feel that it is enough simply to apply moral laws to those living in irregular situations as if they were stones to throw at people's lives. Notice he never says that you don't apply the rule. He never says you get rid of the teaching. He says it's not enough simply to do that. This would bespeak the closed heart of one used to hiding behind the church's teachings, sitting on the chair of Moses and judging at times with superiority and superficiality difficult cases and wounded families. Yes, there is a problem there. What's the best way to help it? Rather than just say, oh, that's a problem. I don't want anything to do with it. It's easy not to get involved in the messy situation. Simply cast stones at it. Well, that's wrong. I get that that's wrong. What can you do to help it? That's where creativity comes into play. You've got to be aware of what's going on and exercise some creativity around that. And you know what? It's going to cost you something. So, yes, you state the goal. If you don't state the goal, if you abandon what Christ teaches and what the church teaches, you're not helping anymore. But in addition to that, you also have to meet them where they are. Pope Francis emphasizes that, but simply meeting them where they are is not enough. So, for example, under the pastoral care section, look at paragraph 56. So, okay, I'm going out to meet them where they are. It is one thing to be understanding of human weaknesses and the complexities of life. We have to do that. And another to accept ideologies that attempt to sunder what are inseparable aspects of reality. Inseparable aspects of reality like union and procreation, like sex and gender, like marriage and children. Those are inseparable aspects of reality. You can't just go into that messy situation, which isn't living that, and say, hey, it's all good. It's not all good. That's not what Christ teaches. It's not what the church teaches. Yes, should you understand that situation from inside of it? Absolutely. Do you accept the ideology that that's a good? If so, you're not on the path anymore. That's not authentic pastoral care. So, for example, paragraph 297 under the path section. The Synod Fathers reached a general consensus, which I support. In considering a pastoral approach towards people who have contracted a civil marriage or who are divorced and remarried or who are simply living together, there they are. That's their current state. It's not the goal. What should we do with them? Well, just affirm them. No. The church has the responsibility of helping them understand the divine pedagogy of grace in their lives. How is God at work here? Tell me about what's going on. As I listen to you, I hear these ways that God is working in your life. But I don't hear this. I was talking to a friend recently whose father had died. And she said, you know, the deepest truth is that I'm at peace with that. Because at last he's with mom again. 
And after many years, that's where he wanted to be. He, he, he wasn't fully alive without mom. But sometimes I'm also sad. And, and after this person described it this way for several minutes, I said, it's a beautiful thing that you're fundamentally at peace with this. And I just want to affirm that grace. But every time you describe it, you describe the peace and you say, but I'm also sad. Can that be an and instead of a but? You can experience both of those, the peace and the joy and the sadness. They're all elements of your humanity here and what Jesus wants for you in this situation. That's not a but, it's an and. Oh, is he affirmation and challenge? You can do that. Goes on to say, what else? And offering them assistance so they can reach the fullness of God's plan for them. Okay, this is what I do see. This is what I don't see. Here's the next step for you. This might be helpful. Something which is always possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can move forward on this path. Paragraph 307 which is under the goal section. To show understanding in the face of exceptional situations, which we should always do, never implies dimming the light of the fuller ideal or proposing less than what Jesus offers to the human being. Now there's a haunting phrase, proposing less than what Jesus offers. When you show understanding in the face of exceptional circumstances, and that's your first step. Do you also propose less than what Jesus offers? I hope not. It may, it may not be the right time or place. You might not be the right person to propose it. But is that on your radar? What Jesus offers, the fullness to that human being? If that's not on your radar, you're off the path. Never propose less than what Jesus offers. So you have to give people something to aim for. Pope Francis makes that clear. But simply meeting them where they are and giving them something to aim for is not enough. You have to walk with them step by step. That's accompaniment. So for example, under pastoral care, the pastoral care section, paragraph 200. This is lovely. Married couples are grateful that their pastors uphold the high ideal of a love that is strong, solid, enduring, and capable of sustaining them through whatever trials they may have to face. There's the goal. Married couples are grateful that the pastors hold up this goal and say, this is what God wants for you. The church wishes, with humility and compassion, and in light of that fullness, to reach out to families who don't live there and to help each family to discover the best way to overcome any obstacles it encounters, to reach out to families in their situation and to help them with a path. Oh, I understand. Here's, here's what's going really well in your life and here's what's working against you. Let's see if we can figure out a path forward to navigate that. And you'll notice on this slide, the path is not straightforward. It's more like sailing a ship. You know, when you're sailing a ship against the wind, you have to tack back and forth. Are you okay with somebody tacking back and forth as the winds of their lives shift? Right now, I'm negotiating the fact that my, um, that my dysfunctional father is pushing on me in this way. And now I'm negotiating the fact that my dysfunctional sister is pushing on me this way. And now I'm negotiating the fact that my dysfunctional workplace is pushing on me this way. So I need to tack back and forth in how I'm handling this stuff. Yeah, and that's a path forward, actually. Tacking back and forth. Because you've always got your eye on that goal. And here's how you move toward it when the wind is blowing against you. It's that or just furl your sails and sit there. Right? People cannot psychologically simply sail upwind forever. A few saints have in history, but not most of us. 
You want his vision of authentic pastoral care? It's the last quotation I gave you on this document. He's coming to the end of Amoris Laetitia. He's afraid that he will be misunderstood. Shocking, but true. He makes a final plea, and this is what he says. In order to avoid all misunderstanding, I would point out that in no way must the church desist from proposing the full ideal of marriage, God's plan in all its grandeur. To show understanding in the face of exceptional circumstances, situations, never implies dimming the light of the fuller ideal or proposing less than what Jesus offers to the human being. At the same time, from our awareness of the weight of mitigating circumstances, psychological, historical, even biological, it follows that without detracting from the evangelical ideal, there is a need to accompany with mercy and patience the eventual stages of personal growth as these progressively appear. There it is. Here's the discipleship roadmap method. One, state the goal in all its fullness. Never propose less than what Jesus offers. Two, in light of all that Jesus offers, meet people where they are. Three, when you meet them where they are, point them toward the goal. Hold out a hope for them that God desires something beautiful for them. Fourth, don't just tell them the goal. Provide a path to the goal. There's the goal, and here's how to get there. And lastly, don't just point them to the path. There it is. Walk it. Good luck. Walk with them all the way. That's hard work. That's what we signed up for when we were baptized. That's what we signed up for when we signed on for lay ministry. That's what we're called to do. This is what a teacher does. This is what a coach does. This is what a pastor does. Without an understanding of this roadmap, it is impossible to understand Amoris Laetitia. With an understanding of the discipleship roadmap, various points in Amoris Laetitia and Pope Francis's pontificate begin to fall into place. With an understanding of this, various mistakes that are made in applying the method come into focus. There are lots of people who affirm one part of the method and sacrifice another part. People on the proverbial right tend to just stay at the goal and they don't want to adopt the smell of the sheep and meet people where they are. That's too messy. When they get themselves cleaned up, then we'll deal with them. That's not enough. People on the proverbial left tend to just go out and affirm the current state. Hey, look, this is where people are, and it's hard to get them up there. In fact, it's so hard it's impossible. So we're just going to affirm them where they are. Neither of those work, because neither of them is the full method. The full method is harder than that. So let me say a couple of things by way of wrap-up, and then I'll answer some questions. For example, at the seminary, we apply this to each man's formation. We have 24 meetings a year as a faculty so that we can discuss every man in formation three times a year before he gets to his final evaluation. And at every one of those meetings, so we say, all right, here is seminarian such and so. When it comes to his human formation, his intellectual formation, his spiritual formation, and his pastoral formation, what gifts from God can we clearly see that he has received? And we celebrate him. Here, this, these things, he's got this. Great. What gifts that God wants for him do we not see any evidence that he is exercising? And we lay them out. Well, this guy doesn't have this. And he doesn't have this, and he's not good at this. Okay, good. 
So, what would be a path for him to move forward? Twice in the fall semester and once in the spring, before he gets his final evaluation, we do that for every guy at the seminary, and then he gets that feedback from his formation advisor. The whole faculty gathers to talk about him. The formation advisor feeds it back to him and says, hey, listen, these are the beautiful things we see in you. And we want to see how does he receive that. Can he receive the goodness that's in him? And here are some of the difficulties that we're looking at. And we want to see how does he receive that. And are we looking for perfection from him by the next meeting? No. We want to see him move the needle. We want to see him engage in the process of formation. We want to see evidence of change. Because when he gets out into the parish, is he going to have to change? Oh my, yes. <laughs> right? Seminary won't have prepared him for everything. Will he be able to read his strengths and weaknesses and change in the parish? We need to see evidence of that. In 2016, the Archdiocese of St. Louis published this document, Hope and Holiness, Pastoral Care for Those Who Experience Same-Sex Attraction. In this document, we applied the Discipleship Roadmap template to these questions. Why? Because people were asking us. And the point of this was not to lay out church teaching. People were coming to us in pastoral ministry saying, listen, I understand the church's teaching about homosexuality. I believe the church's teaching. I have taught the church's teaching. But when a kid shows up in my office door and says, I think I'm gay... I think I'm lesbian. I don't know what to say. What do I say under those circumstances? How do I provide pastoral care? This is meant to begin to answer that question. And so we lay out the discipleship roadmap template. And then we say, here's how it applies. Here are some basic guidelines for you. I'll have a little bit more to say about that in just a second, but... There it is. So, for now, here's the last nuance that I want you to have. Oh, I didn't put it up there. Okay. I took that slide out. Here. The Holy Father likes to refer to the church as a field hospital. And I think it's an awesome image. The church is a field hospital for sinners. Great. Keep in mind this, a field hospital requires triage. Maybe well, we're all of an age where we grew up watching MASH, right? <laughs> triage, they, they come in and some wounds will kill you in minutes. Stat, you've got to deal with this right away. Some will take hours. Within a matter of hours, this guy's going to be dead. Okay, but this guy's got 15 minutes left. You know, combat medics do this, or this guy, he's alive, but I'm afraid he's expectant. He's going to die any second now, and we just can't deal with that. So we get the first priorities in there, wounds that will kill them within minutes, and then hours. Some wounds will kill you in a matter of days. They're going to wait. Some wounds will kill you in decades. This guy's got high cholesterol. That is not a priority right now in a field hospital, right? We've got other guys where this guy's got a sucking chest wound. This guy was shot in the leg. And so we're going to have to remove these bullets at some point or he's going to get lead poisoning. But we've got a little bit of time. Well, the same is true with pastoral care. Pope Francis says in paragraph 105 of Amoris Laetitia, there's a serious problem when we treat all issues as though they were the same seriousness. They're not. We've developed a triage checklist around suicide, right? And people who deal with teenagers know the checklist. You feeling down about your life? Great. You ever thought of killing yourself? Nope. Excellent. Yes, I have. You have a plan for that? No, I don't. Great. Yes, I do have a plan. Do you have the means to carry out that plan? No, I don't. Good. Yes, I do. See, there are four levels of suicide triage. And we just, 
I mean, people know those cold. And if you don't, the first time you ever have to deal with it, you know it afterwards and forever. But we dealt with those in this document. After we laid out the basic pastoral template, we laid out a triage checklist and said, here, level one. So this person comes. Do they believe that God loves them? If not, nothing else is a starter. That's the first thing they need to know. I'm so glad you've come to tell me this. Thank you. Please come in. Sit down. It's like my friend who had a woman show up and knock on her door one night and said, I'm headed to the abortion clinic. And my friend didn't say, oh, that's a sin. You'll go to hell for that. That would have been the end of the conversation. My friend looked at her and said, I'm just about to have a cup of tea. Would you come in and sit with me? Boom. And they were off and running. Tell me about that. How are you feeling? Tell me about what's going wrong. Hey, I can provide help with that. Right? So checklist. Second one. Do they feel alone? Do they know that not only God loves them, but there are other human beings who love them? Third, are they committed? So maybe they do. If not, that's what they need to hear. If they already know that, are they committed to chastity? Because some are and some aren't. Well, then that's your next issue. And then last, do they understand that their identity is not gay or lesbian, but child of God? You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. That's your fundamental identity. So I don't go to the identity question first. Well, that's not your identity. Wrong start. What's the triage checklist for the path moving forward? What I'm so develop your triage checklist. What I'm talking about is a pastoral GPS system. Locating this person in relation to Christ. Where is Jesus and where are they? And how do I draw them closer to Jesus? What's the next step for them? Where are they? What does Jesus want for them? What are the forces working for and against them where they are? What's the next step for them? Where do they need the most help? Who's the best person to provide that help? Because it might not be me. But in God's grace, I may be the one who's there. So, I'm going to go to the question box at this point. There's lots more that could be said. Let me see here. Yeah. Let me give you just one. I'm going to give you one more example of how that unfolds. Say, for example, we've got a seminarian. That's just my, that'll be my example. So I say to the seminarian, ask him a question like, Tell me about your relationship with the communion of saints. Long pause. <laughs> There's nothing there. Blank stare. The guy has no idea what this concept even means. Okay. Good. Thank you. I know something about him. I know where he is in relation to Jesus. I know something that's missing. So the next step is I make it a guy who gets the concept of that and he can talk about it. Yeah, the communion of saints. Because, you know, it's really important to have a relationship with the saints. Because you look at all the great saints and they had relations with other saints. Like they had patron saints and like St. Therese had a patron saint and St. Joan of Arc had a patron saint and like my pastor has a patron saint. So communion of saints, really important. That's good. <laughs> Karen Weber's laughing because she can see it. It is good. It's good. On a conceptual level, the guy gets it. But you notice what he never named was any particular experience. He never named any personal relationship with any saint. He talked around the issue. And that's good that he's got a conceptual knowledge of it, but he's got no experience of it. And that's good. Then I, I know where he is and I know what's the next step for him. Well, I want you to think about taking a, a particular patron saint and then I propose some suggestions, right? Well, let me give you just three people to think about. You can pray about which one of those you might want it to be. That's the next step for him. And then two or three months later, I ask him, hey, how's that going? And either he can talk to me about it or he can't. I know where he is. I'm providing a path forward. Or a guy says, yeah, you know what? I'll tell you what. St. Rose of Lima has a tendency to show up in my life. 
And here are the ways that she has shown up in my life. Boom. That's a guy who not only gets the concept, he can name an experience. Right? And then I could ask that guy, well, tell me, has that changed over time at all? Oh, man, let me tell you about the first time. Or changed? What do you mean? Ah, this is a new experience for this guy. Versus, let me tell you about the first time she showed up in my life. It was 15 years ago, and here's what happened. And then after that, this happened. And then after that, these things happened. I know it may be kind of weird to be talking about having a woman as a patron saint, but there it is. Okay, so this is a guy who not only has the experience, he's got a history with it. And then I say to him, so tell me, how have you drawn other people into this same reality? No response. I'm getting the blank stare again. He, he has, it's been his own experience, but he's never fathered anyone in that. And if he's going to be a priest, he's got to learn to be a father versus a guy who says, let me tell you about how I, I did start to teach this to the seventh graders at PSR. Good. Excellent. Let me tell you about how I taught my little brother about this. Or this person from the young adult group. Oh, that's even different than teaching seventh graders, isn't it? All right, so that's, that's our pastoral GPS with these guys. It's our accompaniment GPS. We find out where they are. We know where they need to be because the program for priestly formation gives us eight pages of characteristics of a priest. Yeah, and the guy's got to meet those. It's astonishing. But, you know, step by step, you acquire those skills. Right? Anyways, that's just an example of how do we do this at the seminary. My point is, um, my point is not to overwhelm you. My point is to say, as you start to lean into this, there are all kinds of ways you can go with it. There's a skill that you acquire like an emergency room physician. And different people will be skillful at different areas of this. Okay. So, now I'm going to get to these questions. Question number one. Can lay people be part of the Focus Missionary Program? Yes, but only if you're like university student age. So, you guys are aced out. Focus is the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And they train young adults to go to college campuses as Catholic missionaries and draw other people into discipleship. And they give them all kinds of tools for this. So when you meet a focused missionary, you'll know it because they are very skillful about these areas of the discipleship roadmap. But here's the deal. You are being trained as focused missionaries for the parish. That's what this program is. Focus missionaries rolls off my tongue because I'm familiar with who they are and what they do and who their personnel are. And I have trained with focus trainers. And that's where some of the content of this program comes from. Not just from focus, but from a common fund of how do you do formation. So you are hereby recruited into Focus for Parish. What are a few of the biggest distinctions between science and theology? I'm not going to touch that today. It's a nice try to tempt me into the theology and science path. I'll only say this. The distinction between them is a little bit like this. Suppose you were to go and spend time in my office and study my office. Could you know certain things about me without letting you into my locked files? You could learn certain things about me. If you came and sat down in my office and had a conversation with me, could you know certain things about me? So the relationship between what you could know by just studying my office and just talking to me, even outside of my office, is like the relationship between theology and science. Those things are meant to go together and illuminate one another. But just sit with that image, because God provided us a world in which we could study him and know certain things about him. And then he gave us himself in history and in the Eucharist and in prayer so we could know him in a different way. It's the same God. We know him in these complementary ways. What are the names of good books or articles or websites to help young adults who are attracted to the same sex to be drawn back to holiness? 
They're listed in the appendix of this. And by the way, you walk past these every time you walk through the foyer because there are always copies of them out there. And I brought some extra ones today and there's like a hundred of them in the Office of Laity and Family Life. So you can find them. But let me say my top three are these. This. No false modesty. I think it's very well done. You should see the list of people who worked on this. It was amazing. What a group. Um, two, Dan, uh, Eve Tushnet's book, Gay and Catholic. Now, I recommend that with some cautions because I think Eve gets some things wrong, but Eve, is, Eve identifies herself as lesbian and she is fully committed to living church teaching. And she lets you inside of her struggles and just says, look, this, I, I know what not to do. And I'm committed to not doing it and I won't do that. But can you please tell me what I am supposed to do? How am I supposed to make my life a gift? How am I supposed to make a total gift of myself to others that's fruitful for them? How am I supposed to live my life in service with these attractions? Nobody's telling me how to develop friendships. How can I develop friendships that will help me live chastely? Because if I don't have good friends, it's going to come out sideways. So Eve lets you into her heart and mind and says, these are the struggles that I experience. She's very good for that. Okay? But then also, don't read that without reading Dan Matson's book, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. Dan is a Catholic man who has deep-seated same-sex attraction. And he says, look, just that's a stable part of how I experience myself. But my identity is not gay. And he lays out very beautifully how the church's understanding of this issue has helped him to understand his own experience of himself. So I, those are my top three. Oh, I'll name two more. Uh, websites. First is uh, go to the Courage Apostolate. The Courage Apostolate is the number one national resource for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. They don't have a teens division, but they can help you out. Okay? And we have a local Courage chapter. It's advertised in the St. Louis Review all the time. If you go onto the Courage website, you can find out where to call locally for help. And then um, Desire of the Everlasting Hills is a great film of three people who have lived the gay lifestyle and have come back to the church out of it. And they just tell their stories. So there, these resources are in here in the back so you can use those. It's awesome that seminarians are now getting so much more training to deal with the messy situations. Our older priests who didn't have this training offered opportunities to do that and encouraged to receive this type of training. Um, I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> no. uh. That's a messy situation. Yes, they are, through the Office of Continuing Education and Formation for Priests. Lots of them go to it on their own. Some of them go to it. Sometimes there's group settings like this where the priests come in for formation on issues like that. Whenever, whenever they identify. Now, a lot of these guys have learned on the job how to do it. Okay? But there is ongoing formation that they can go to. There's ongoing formation that's sponsored by the archdiocese on all kinds of things. So just know that that kind of thing does happen. It's a whole division of the Curia, the Office of Ongoing Formation for Priests. Okay. Would you address the controversy of Amoris Laetitia, specifically footnote 351? Yes, I will. This is going to take me a couple minutes. So footnote 351 says this. Let me just locate it. There we go. Footnote 351 belongs to paragraph 305. In certain cases, so what's the situation? In an objective situation of sin, 
people not living the church's teaching. They're divorced and remarried, for example, which may not be subjectively culpable. Maybe that's not their fault for a variety of reasons, whatever, or fully culpable. A person can be living God's grace and can love and can also grow in the life of grace and charity. It's imperfect, but they can make imperfect progress while receiving the church's help to this end. Oh, what kind of help? Footnote 351. In certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. That's not an issue so much in the United States anymore. It was maybe 30 or 40 years ago. still is in Latin America. I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Okay, wait, did he just say that people living in objectively sinful situations can receive the Eucharist? We didn't say that. Did he imply that? Is that what he meant to say? Well, if you look at paragraph 300, footnote 336, it says, This can also be the case with regard to sacramental discipline, since discernment can recognize that in a particular situation no grave fault exists. In such cases, what is found in another document applies. Huh. Well, okay. So that's ambiguous. It is ambiguous. That could be read a couple of different ways. If you were to look at paragraph 242 of the document, what you would read is, I'm going to give you a few references. 242. Divorced people who have not remarried and often bear witness to marital fidelity ought to be encouraged to find in the Eucharist the nourishment they need to sustain them in their present state of life. He just said divorced people who are not remarried can find in the Eucharist sustenance. He just said who is invited to receive the Eucharist. Okay? That implies something about who's not. Well, what if you're divorced and remarried? Oh, that's a different situation. In fact, all of chapter 6 goes along like this. Paragraph 247, he says this. This is interesting. Here we go. Issues involving mixed marriages require particular attention. So when you have a Catholic and a non-Catholic. With regard to sharing in the Eucharist, so non-Catholic and non-Catholic, can you share in the Eucharist? With regard to that, The decision as to whether the non-Catholic party of the marriage may be admitted to Eucharistic communion is to be made in keeping with the general norms existing in this matter. We already have norms that govern that. And the general norm is, no, that can't be done. There are certain really exceptional circumstances under which it can happen, but there are special cases in canon law. The general norm is, no, because they're not in communion with the church. Although the spouses in a mixed marriage share the sacraments of baptism and matrimony, Eucharistic sharing can only be exceptional, and in each case, according to the stated norms. Well, for mixed marriages, this is what's the case. So, the norms of reception for mixed marriages are to be observed. The norms for divorce and remarriage can't be less than that. And he's already stated that in the text when he says footnote 351. So go back to what he says in chapter 6. And all through chapter 6, he says, look, this is the church teaching. And we are not to compromise this. Paragraph 297, which I read read part of to you. In considering a pastoral approach towards people who have contracted a civil marriage, who are divorced and remarried, or simply living together, the church has the responsibility of helping them understand the divine pedagogy of grace in their lives. Here's how God is at work here. And offering them assistance so they can reach the fullness of God's plan for them. Because they're not there yet. There it is. He said it again. They're they're not under the circumstances under which that would be, uh, communion would be possible. Look at the rest of paragraph 300. Here we go. So, 336 comes up at the start of 300. Later he says this. 
what we are speaking of is a process of accompaniment and discernment which guides the faithful to an awareness of their situation before God. This is your situation. You are not living in communion with the church. You need to understand that. Conversation with the priest in the internal forum contributes to the formation of a correct judgment on what hinders the possibility of a fuller participation in the life of the church. So in the confessional, the priest can say, look, these are the things that hinder you from full participation in the life of the church. And this is what would have to be addressed for there to be communion. And on what steps can foster it and make it grow. The priests know that because they've gone through a confessional practicum. And we throw them into situations like this. This discernment can never prescind from the gospel demands of truth and charity as proposed by the church. And the church already has a teaching on this. So what does he mean in paragraph 351? He can't mean you simply admit them to communion because the rest of the document contradicts that. And he lays that out abundantly. There's more that he says about that, but he goes on to say, these attitudes are essential for avoiding the grave danger of misunderstandings, such as the notion that any priest can quickly grant exceptions or that some people can obtain sacramental privileges in exchange for favors because there's an insidious practice called the internal forum solution where a priest simply says in the confessional, I dispense you from this requirement. I know the church says that divorce and remarriage, that's a no-go for communion, but I take you into the internal forum and I release you from that. And Pope Francis just said, you can't do that. And he said that because priests were doing it. And every priest who ever did it knows exactly what he was talking about when he said that. You can't do that. And if you can't relax it under those circumstances, why would you under other circumstances? So, how do, you, how do you make sense of all that? Here's how I make sense of all that. Pope Francis is not a theologian. He sometimes writes ambiguous theological things. Pope John Paul II was a philosopher and a great one. And I loved that about him. And I learned from him. Pope Benedict is a fantastic theologian. There are many of us who think he might one day be named a doctor of the church. Incredible theologian. I loved that about him and I learned from him. Pope Francis is a Jesuit. <laughs> that means a spiritual director. And he's a very good spiritual director. But he tends to write in the mode of spiritual direction. And you can't read that theologically. So sometimes he writes things and you, a theologian looks at that and says, Holy Father, that's kind of ambiguous. You know, that could be read a couple of different ways. And so you have to read the whole context of his work to see what he means by that. And that takes an enormous effort. But that's the task of a theologian, is to help the Holy Father clarify those things. And that's what I'm trying to do today clarify for you paragraph 351. So here's what I want to say. He affirms the teaching of the church on divorce, remarriage, and communion again and again and again in this document. And he provides a template for helping people grow to where they could receive communion. And he writes two footnotes that are ambiguous and need clarification. But that's the task of church history, is to clarify those things and say, well, I understand that that could be read the wrong way. You know, when the catechism came out, there was a paragraph about what happens to infants who die without baptism. And it could be read as though, well, they get into heaven. And John Paul II said, oh, I'm sorry. That's not the teaching of the church. I didn't mean to imply that. I'm sorry that you misread it that way. So I'm going to issue a new version of that paragraph that clarifies what that means. And he did. Great. So that's what needs to happen here. This is the question I'm going to end with. In brief, since our last class, I was asked for my blessing for my niece's partner to ask her hand in marriage. 
had the most mindful moment that I can ever recall as my next words were important. My niece is like my daughter. As my sister passed away nine years ago and we were always very close. Both my mom and my sister were judgmental and relationships were damaged by their legalistic views. Years of shaping led me to respond the only way I felt I could. I responded with love and not judgment. I'm still conflicted. But they know my beliefs. They knew my sister's beliefs and my mother. But they've been together for 15 years and they love each other. With that said, I cannot sit here in judgment of their lifestyle choice. If I'm in their life, I have the ability to influence them, but not the power to change their hearts. Only God can do that. Do you have any advice on how to handle this on a go-forward basis? Let me say this. I think you have an idea of how to handle this on a go-forward basis. What is your own experience of that situation? You're experiencing two things. One is, my first step needs to be to love them and stay in their life and support them. And that is the right first step. But you still feel conflicted, don't you? You know what your mom and your sister did. They simply judged them right away and shut off the relationship. And that was it. Nothing further could happen. You know that that was wrong. And so you loved them as best you could. But in your heart of hearts, you know that there's something more. You're conflicted because Jesus wants something there that you're not seeing. And I don't know what the right time and place and way might be to say any of that or whether there will be an opportunity for any of it. I'll say two things from the document and then I'll give my advice. Paragraph 78, I think, applies here. The church turns with love to those who participate in her life in an imperfect manner. You've made the right first step. You turned with love toward them. She seeks the grace of conversion for them. Do you seek the grace of conversion for them? Now, it may not be by telling them, hey, listen, you're living in sin. This is not what God wants for you. It may not be the time or the place for that. But do you somewhere in your heart of hearts seek conversion to the fullness of church teaching for them? I think you have to hold on to that. And paragraph 297 applies. In considering a pastoral approach towards people who have contracted a civil marriage or are divorced and remarried or living together in a lesbian relationship for 15 years, the church has the responsibility of helping them understand the divine pedagogy of grace in their lives. How is God at work in your life? That's a question that you can ask. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about how you're experiencing God at work here. And then use your GPS. Hey, here's what I hear and it's beautiful. They don't hear this. Tell me about that. And that may not, the first step may not be, this needs to end. The first step may be, you guys don't pray together. Or there's some impatience in this relationship. I see that. You guys are just sometimes mean to one another. That's not okay. Maybe that's the first growth point. Or where are they not exercising human virtues that are needed in a relationship? on the path toward eventually God illuminating their hearts to see something profound missing here. But sometimes we are the instrument God uses. Right? And that's a long path to walk with somebody like that. So I'm not going to give you an easy solution to that. On a go-forward basis, only you can decide. You're in relationship with them. And that's a beautiful thing. The door is open. So lean into it one step at a time. Help them grow in grace and holiness and human virtue. 
one step at a time. It's messy. And after 10 or 20 years of doing this all together and talking about it, we will have made a whole big set of mistakes. <laughs> and we'll be able to talk to one another about the mistakes we've made and how we can do better next time. Because that's how it works. But if we simply shut them out, that's a mistake we can't make anymore. If we simply affirm them, that's a mistake we can't make anymore. Can we do better? I think we can. It involves balancing like five different things. Yeah, that's the mess we're called into. Right? When Pope Francis says, go, make a mess, I think this is what he means. Wade in there. Love them. Make mistakes. And then two mistakes you'll make are not saying enough and saying too much. And you'll figure out the balance of those and, and you'll have to apologize. That's all I want to say about that. Thank you.